So um, today I am continuing along in the merry old series that we've been doing on Ephesians. And what I would normally do is look at the passage verse by verse, but I'm not going to do that today because I feel for this particular passage, if we really want to understand what Paul's trying to tell us, we need to understand it in the context of the letter as a whole. So I'm going to start by looking what he said up to this point. Then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the um, context the Ephesian people find themselves in. Then we'll have the reading. So just in case you think I've forgotten the reading and you're not sure what we're talking about, we will get there. Hang on in there, trust me. So are you ready? The fact I learned when researching for this talk is that the Apostle Paul is renowned for writing in what theologians call the indicative imperative. Indicative theology is apparently theology that states facts or realities, and then imperative theology expresses exhortations or commands. This is the technique that he uses when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, because in the first three chapters of this letter, he uses the indicative to explain what it means to have our identity in Christ. And then for the second three chapters, he uses the imperative to give us instructions on how we should live our lives as a result of having our identity in Christ. And therefore, understanding what Paul means when he says, in Christ, is quite important if we're going to understand what he's saying in the passage. So I'm going to start by looking at that phrase. For Paul, in Christ, is shorthand for what happens when we pray the prayer and are incorporated into union with Christ. Or, as Karl Barth puts it, when we put him on like a covering garment, when we robe ourselves in Christ. So when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Christ, and what is true about Christ becomes true about us. The theologian N.T. Wright in his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, puts it like this. When Paul speaks of us being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people, so that when, that ha- when what happens to him happens to them, and what is true for him is true for them. Gosh, that was terrible reading. I'm gonna have another go at that. Can we pretend I didn't do that bit? I'm gonna read it again, it's gonna make sense. When Paul speaks of us as being in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them and what is true of him is true of them. For example, in the story of David and Goliath, When the shepherd boy David took on the challenge of fighting the giant Goliath, he did so not on his own behalf, but as Israel's representative. Therefore, if David had lost the battle, all of Israel would have lost the battle and suffered the consequences of his defeat. However, he won the battle, and his victory was also the people's victory. What is true for David was true for them. Likewise, when Jesus went into battle with the oldest and darkest enemy of all, he did so representing God's people. And therefore, when he won that battle, those who are in him, who are in Christ, share in that victory. So who are we in Christ? Let's have a look at what Paul says in the very first chapter of this letter. In verse three, he says, we're people who are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In verse four, 
we're chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Verse five, we are loved. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We are under God's pleasure. We have been redeemed and forgiven. Verse eight and nine, we're privileged with the knowledge of his will. Verse 11, we are chosen. Verse 13, we're included in Christ and saved. And my favorite of all of them, verse 14, we are marked in him with a seal, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. This is our true identity. This is who we are in Christ. And it will not change in time. What is true for us now is true for us throughout eternity. God has adopted us into his family. We're dearly loved sons and daughters and we've been marked with the seal guaranteeing our future. Our God delights in us and this is never going to change. Moreover, in Christ, we are holy and blameless. I know you're looking at me and you're judging me. But each one of us may or may not feel holy and blameless, but in Christ, we are. Does that mean that we're not sinners? No. We are holy and blameless because when God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Christ. And when I say we're holy and blameless, that's not only true for us theologically, but it's also becoming true for us in reality. You see, in Christ, our identity is rooted in the future, who we're becoming. It isn't rooted in our past, who we used to be, or even in our present, who we currently are. We're caught in what George Ladd calls the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Jesus has decisively won the battle on the cross, and we can already see signs of that victory, but his kingdom will not be fully realized until his second coming. We can plainly see that we are no longer who we were, but it's equally apparent that we're not all that we could be. We are in a process of becoming who we really are in Christ. Confused? You soon will be. (laughs) If you were to ask me who I am and my identity was rooted in the past, I would tell you I'm impatient, selfish and undisciplined and that I'm riddled with unforgiveness and I'm extremely argumentative and don't argue with me. If you were to ask me who I am and my identity was rooted in how I am today, I would tell you I'm somebody who's set free from anger and I've learned how to forgive, but I'm still wrestling with impatience, selfishness and lack of self-discipline. I have seen God's transformation in my life, but I'm a woman on a journey and I still have a long, long way to go. But if you were to ask me who I am, and my identity is rooted in Christ, I will tell you who I'm becoming. I will tell you, I am a dearly loved daughter of the King of Kings. I am holy and blameless, and I'm more like Christ than I ever have been. That's not who I am now on this timeline. It lies in my future, but is nonetheless who I'm becoming in Christ. This is my true identity. Much as a caterpillar doesn't resemble a butterfly, but is nonetheless a butterfly in early stages of development, 
We are made in God's image and destined to reflect him, but in the early stages of development. I remember many moons ago, coming out of hospital with my elder sister and her newborn baby. I was gobsmacked. I literally could not believe these sensible adults would let my sister walk out with a newborn human being when she didn't know anything about them. None of our family had had a baby. None of her friends had had a baby. She didn't know anything. And yet, there she was, walking out of hospital with this baby. However, from the moment she gave birth, my sister was a mother. She had yet to learn what it would look like, and she'd spend the rest of her life learning how to be what she already was. But her status as mother, good or bad, was established the moment she gave birth. Likewise, our identity is firmly set the moment we're adopted into God's family. We are God's image idols, his sons and daughters, holy and blameless, ambassadors and light bearers. The fact that we're still a work in progress doesn't change that. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that when they come to faith, they become new creations in Christ, and being in Christ is their new identity, because he understands that if they don't grasp this concept, they'll never be able to live up to their calling in Christ. However, living out of that reality was no easier for the Ephesians than it is for us now. It seems to be so much easier to rest our identity on what our culture values. For instance, our performance. When our resume virtues reflect not only a career path, but an identity. The better our performance, the greater we believe our value is. Or our possessions. A large bank balance, a big house, or the latest gadgetry are what we believe give us value. The more we have, the more we feel we're important. Or our plumage. Fashion becomes more than a way of staying warm. It's an, it's an identity statement. I power dress, therefore I am powerful. Or I look good, and therefore I am admirable. Or our popularity. We need to be present, we need to present an airbrushed version of ourselves to the world in order to feel good about ourselves. We need to be more intelligent, more good-looking, more famous than anybody else in order to feel that we are worthy. Or our progeny. Our value lies in our ability to parent well. If our children are well-dressed, polite, and successful, we can feel confident in our own worth. And these are just a few examples of the places we can put our identity. But the danger in putting our identities in places that are not Christ is that they are not stable. For instance, what happens if our identity is in our performance if we lose our job or get passed over for promotion? Or what if our identity is in our possessions and we lose our money? Or what if our identity is in our plumage and we lose our looks or our hair or our teeth? What if our identity is in our popularity and we stop being flavor of the month? And what happens if our identity is in our progeny and we lose our children to bad behavior or addiction? All these identities are shifting sands that can be taken away at a moment's notice. 
What Paul wants us to understand is that one of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is getting our identity and calling from heaven, not from earth. Our true identity is rooted not in our performance, possessions, or popularity, but in Christ. Having explained in chapters one to three that we are extraordinary and beautiful new people in Christ, Paul goes on to teach that what we do in our lives will flow out of who we believe we are. Either it will flow out of the truth of what God says about us, or it will flow out of the unfounded beliefs that we have acquired before we came to faith. And only when we know who we are loved by and who we are becoming in that love, will we ever have the freedom, courage, and faith to step into our true calling? So that's the first three chapters. Paul starts the second half of his letter with, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So let me paraphrase what Paul's saying. Over the last three chapters, I have explained in detail who you are in Christ. Now live up to it. Paul isn't saying we need to earn our salvation because we all know salvation is by grace. He's saying we have a high and holy identity and calling before Christ and that we shouldn't waste our time on anything else. And that's what he continues to teach right up to the passage we're going to look at today. So that is the backdrop to the letter and now I want to give you the cultural background that the Ephesian church find themselves in. So Ephesus in the first century was home to the temple of Artemis, the biggest temple in antiquity and one of the seven wonders of the world. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the wilderness, the hunt, wild animals and fertility. And the Ephesians believed she protected them from their enemies. But she was by no means the only god worshiped there. There is evidence that many other gods were venerated, including Dionysus, who, was, who had a very vibrant cult following. The festivals created in honor of Dionysus varied from place to place, but it seems that the common features were the emphasis on fertility, sex, debauchery, wild and frenzied dancing, and orgies fueled by extensive wine consumption. This actually was their worship, and the more freedom they exhibited in their worship, the better they understood it to be. This, they believed, was how they could please Dionysus, but it was also had the fringe benefit of taking their minds off the pressures and stresses of their daily life. And I think it's worth noting, with this as a backdrop, that many of the people that Paul would have been writing to may very well have been involved in this stuff before they came to faith. So with that backdrop in in mind, um, Mo's very kindly agreed to come and do the reading for us. Thank you. Can you hear me? Cool. Cool, Ephesians 5 from verses 1 to 20. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, 
because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater. He has, has any inheritance in, sorry, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you of empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Thank you. on higher. Okay, when we listen to that passage in the light of the earlier teaching in the letter and bearing in mind the Ephesian cultural context, I would like to suggest that Paul is actually reiterating exactly the same message. In verses one and two, he instructs them, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is yet again exhorting them to live out of this new identity as dearly loved children of God so that their lives reflect their identity. Then in verses three to six, he explains that their old ways of behavior are no longer appropriate. Surely it should go without saying that a life that manifests even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking shouldn't be incorporated into Christ. Moreover, these behaviors are particularly obnoxious as their behaviors associating with worshiping other gods, which makes them idolatrous. And a follower of Christ cannot also worship other gods without incurring God's wrath. In verse seven, he goes on to command them, therefore, do not be partners with them. The Ephesians seem to be compromising their faith, worshiping Christ, but at the same time, continuing in some familiar traditions in their culture. Verse eight to 13. This was the behavior of darkness that would have been familiar to them before they came to faith. But now they are children of the light of the Lord. They should now live out this new identity as children of light and display the fruit of the light, goodness, 
righteousness, and truth. In 14 to 15, it would, it would seem that they are spiritually unaware, sleepwalking through life, and that is dangerous. Paul urges them to wake up. They've died with Christ in their baptism, and now Paul asks them to rise up out of the dead and take up their new identity as light bearers for Christ. Verse 16 and 17. How we live is important. It matters. We must live our lives intentionally, making the most of the opportunities that we are offered and alert to the evil around us. Verses 18 to 20. Why would you fill yourself with what you used to think would bring you peace when you know it doesn't work and leads you into sin? Why not fill yourself with the Holy Spirit instead, whose promises are not empty and whose company will lead you into praise and worship? If I were to sum up all that Paul is trying to teach in Ephesians, and indeed to us in this passage, is it's easy for believers to slip into the habit of living a double life. To be a Christian and put your identity both in Christ and at the same time in the things of the world is like being a man standing with his feet in two untethered boats. Sooner or later, they will drift away from each other and he must either make a choice of which boat he's going to stand in or suffer extreme discomfort. And I believe what is true for the Ephesians is just as true for us. It's easy to find ourselves paying lip service to our faith, but living out the cultural norms of our cultural context. However, if I were to paraphrase all that Paul teaches in the letter, it would be, if we're going to fulfill our potential and live out our calling, we need to consciously reject the identity the world places on us and make every effort to live out our new identity in Christ. It's so easy um, to blend. Everything in our culture tells us we're supposed to blend in. We're meant to conform and not look different. But everything that we read in the Bibles tells us we're supposed to put our light on a pedestal so that Christ's light can go in the darkness. And it's very difficult to see that in the mundanity of day-to-day life, of making choices and decisions where your feet are not in both boats, but you stand up and you make awkward decisions because you want to follow Christ. For too long, the church has been asleep and too few of the people have been prepared to stand up and say, I'm one of them, I'm a Christian, I think he's amazing, he's changed my life. Because it doesn't seem very cool Well, Christ calls the not very cool people, the people who prepare to stand up and say I'm one of them. And I feel that's the challenge of Paul's letter. Are you with me? Or have you got your feet in two boats? Because it's so easy to let life slip through our fingers and find at the end we haven't done anything to expand God's kingdom. 